You know, the New Testament book of Acts gives us a picture of what the first century church looked like and, and what was of value to them, what was important to them. In Acts chapter two, beginning with verse 42, it says this, all the believers, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Kind of the four big values of the New Testament church to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, sharing in meals, and to prayer. And it says, a deep sense of awe came over all of them, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. You know, that deep sense of awe, of seeing God at work in our lives, doesn't just happen. It happens when we devote ourselves to the teaching of God's word, to being in community together, to uh, prayer, and uh, that's what this time is all about. Worship, in worship we are invited into the presence of God and to be strengthened, to live our lives each and every day. So I invite you to open your heart today to all that God has for you. Let's pray together. Gracious God, whose word is not just a one-way conversation, we invite you to talk uh, with us today and to hear us as we pray to you. Free us so that we might listen for your voice and empower us to speak to you. For in Jesus Christ, you've called us into a time of friendship, which influences every other relationship in our life. Help us to see beauty where we might be tempted to see ugliness in ourselves as well as in others. And may your joy be found in us as well. As you washed uh, the feet of your disciples, help us to learn to serve others. As you lifted, uh, have lifted uh, us off of our knees, help us to help lift other people up that we are around each week. For we all are created in your image. So God, recreate us uh, in us uh, today, a new heart, one that beats in tune with your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we are continuing the teaching series we've been doing through the summer months. It's called Dare to Dream, and we're focusing on an Old Testament character, the life of Abraham, in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And today we're in Genesis chapter 18, the last portion of that, uh, of that chapter. Um, this week's uh, message and next week are sort of tied together. Uh, we are going to be talking about the infamous city of Sodom and the evil that was present in that place. And today we're going to be talking about how to be a person of prayer in the midst of situations that are sinful or evil or very difficult. And I'm going to be talking about something called the 2% rule as a guide for how we too as, uh, as people uh, can influence the world around us for good. So stay tuned for all that in just a few moments. Pray with me, will you? God, we are grateful for all the times and the places where we find you present, uh, but especially in the lives of people who, uh, that we might not expect. Open our hearts today to your word, to this story of faith, as we hear it in the life of your servant Abraham. And we invite you to break down uh, walls that divide us and keep us from being honest with you and show us, uh, show us ourselves in this great story so that ultimately we will be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The United States Marine Corps has used a slogan, uh, we're looking for a few good men 
for well over 200 years. It began in 1779 when Captain William Jones advertised for a few good men to enlist in the Corps, thinking that it would be all that was needed. It became a challenge. It became a dare to young men back then and continues to even be today to see if they are the one or if they are one of the few uh, men or women that the Marines are looking for. Throughout history, every great battle has come down to a handful of soldiers who stood their ground in the face of opposition. It was true at Gettysburg when a few hundred Union soldiers stood fast at the angle and repulsed Pickett's charge. It was also true at Bastogne when in 1944, the beleaguered and encircled men of the 101st Airborne refused to surrender to the Nazis. There's a great truth in for us today from this popular slogan of the Marine Corps. God is looking for a few good men and women. And he searches the earth to find those who will stand strong in a day when there is so much evil all around us. Why? The answer is really not hard to find. A few people united for a cause can change the world. I spoke earlier about the 2% rule. I don't know if you've ever heard about it. The director of Campus Crusade for Christ at a major university said once that his goal was to enlist 2% of the campus in their programs because they had discovered that with 2%, which seems like a pretty tiny minority, but with 2%, they could change the moral climate of that campus. Robert Bella, a sociologist of religion, once said, we should not underestimate the significance of a small group of people who have a vision of a just and gentle world. The governing values of a whole culture may be changed when 2% of its people have a new vision. Now, it's an interesting concept. All you need is 2% of the people to change an entire culture. Politicians tell us that on certain issues, the letters that they receive from voters do make a difference. And the point, I think, is clear. It doesn't take many people to impact a situation or a culture. That means um, that we can make a difference right where we are. Consider the DeWitt community, you know, which is about 20,000 or so. Total population, if you count the city and the township, 2% is just a few hundred people. You see, we have more than that at Redeemer uh, on most Sundays. And we ought to have a powerful influence for God in this community. Why? Because a few people united for a cause can change the world. And with that, we turn to our text this morning in Genesis chapter 18. It's the famous story of Abraham pleading uh, with God for the city of Sodom uh, to be spared. And some of you may know the general outline of the story. But when God inspects the city of Sodom, he finds that the sin is so great that he is determined to destroy the city. Abraham intercedes with God, asking him to spare the city on behalf of the righteous people who may be still living there. And what transpires is a rather funny exchange between Abraham and God. As Abraham uses all of his persuasive powers to induce God to spare this great city. He asked God to spare the city for the sake of just 50 righteous people, and God agrees. And then Abraham senses an opening, 
and he lowers the number to 45. Would God spare the city for just 45 righteous people? And God agrees. And then Abraham begins to work him down again to 40 and to 30 and to 20 and finally to 10. Would God spare the city of Sodom for the sake of just 10 righteous people? And the answer is yes. It's at that point that either God indicated that he would go no lower or Abraham decided not to press his luck. But the NIV study Bible suggests that he stopped at 10 because that number equaled his nephew Lot and wife and daughters and their husbands. For just 10 people, the great city of Sodom would be spared. Now, archeologists tell us that Sodom may have been a city of almost a quarter of a million people in Abraham's day, and yet it would have been spared if there had been just 10 righteous people. I want us to look at four lessons from this ancient story this morning. And the first one is this. There is no doubt that the central lesson of our story deals with the character of God. It tells us about God's knowledge. He knows all about our sin. He knows all about the sin in Sodom. He has heard the outcry from this city. God sees and he knows. He sees every injustice in this evil world. James Montgomery Boyce catches this truth very well. He says of our modern world, and, and, and he is a pastor who served for many years in the city of Philadelphia. But he, sa- he catches this talking about our modern world. He says, listen, can't you hear the cries in your own imagination? I think I hear the cry of a child feeling worthless and hurt and terrified being beaten by a drunken father. There's another cry, it's the cry of an old man assaulted by a gang of tough street kids. I hear his painful cry as they beat him around the face and shoulders. Then there's the cry of a teenage girl being molested in an abandoned car. And there, the cry of a wife abandoned by her husband. I hear the cry of a man trapped by the welfare system and he's given up. I hear the cry of sinful pleasures, the boisterous cries in the thousands of bars that dot the landscape of our cities, the cries of prostitutes and those who patronize them, the soft cries of drug addicts and the arrogant cries of those who have been able to defeat their enemies and ruin their competitors. But wait, those cries are only a fraction of the millions of cries that are rising up every moment of every day from every street in every city and village of our land, cries that are all heard by God and felt by God. Will God's judgment not fall on us also and fall quickly? How shall we excuse ourselves when the righteous God comes down to see if what we have done is as bad as the accusations that have reached his ears. Secondly, this story teaches us about God's justice. God will not wink at sin. God cannot wink at sin. He doesn't say, you know, well, people will be people. Live and let live. He always does what is right. Abraham's whole prayer is based on the question we read in verse 25, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Or in the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the arm of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Third, from this story, we also learn a powerful lesson about God's mercy. 
You know, when he heard the outcry of Sodom's sin, God personally came down to earth in disguise, but in, he came to investigate the case to see if things were as bad as what he'd been hearing. Furthermore, God allowed Abraham to intercede when, when he could have just destroyed the city from the very beginning. But we see God's mercy most clearly in this one fact, he would have spared the entire city for only 10 righteous people. Now it's often said that prayer changes things and I do believe that, but we need to think clearly about this. Since God knows all things from beginning to end, prayer doesn't necessarily change God's mind, but it often changes our mind. In this case, prayer changed Abraham's mind about God. He knew God was just, but was God also merciful? After this prayer, he could say with confidence that God was merciful, not only for hearing his prayer, but for agreeing to spare the city for the sake of 10 righteous people. Now in our series on Abraham, I have from time to time pointed out there's some firsts that we encounter in this section of the book of Genesis. And here we come to yet another first. When Abraham prays for Sodom, it is the first intercessory prayer recorded in the entire Bible. To intercede means to plead the case for someone else. You know, when a friend speaks up on behalf of a student about, a, about to be punished, that friend is interceding. And likewise, when Abraham asked God to spare Sodom, he was interceding in the highest court of the universe. But it raises an interesting question. Why did God allow Abraham to intercede for Sodom? After all, God already knew the facts. He already knew what he was going to do. Doesn't that make Abraham's request kind of useless? To say it that way is to come up against one of the greatest mysteries of prayer. If God already knows what he's gonna do, then why, why should we pray? Some of those answers to, the, uh, to, those que to that question may be seen in our text. First, God allowed Abraham to intercede so that God could reveal he, that he's a merciful God. Second, he did it so that we would know that God takes no pleasure in destroying wickedness and wicked people. Third, Abraham's prayer shows us the power that righteous people do have. And fourth, in a larger sense, it teaches us the value of intercession. This is what prayer is all about. So we may, be, we may confidently say that Abraham's intercession teaches us something about God and something about prayer. Now, it's important to realize that Abraham doesn't question God's right to judge, nor his decision to judge the wicked. He's not saying, God, who do you think you are? What right do you have to destroy Sodom? Unlike us, Abraham understands that a holy God does have the right to judge his own creation. And in all that Abraham says, he, he implicitly recognizes the sovereignty of God. So why then does Abraham pray? Well, the answer is found in verse 23, when he asks God, will you sweep away both the righteous and the unrighteous and the wicked? In other words, how can a righteous God treat righteous people the same way he treats the unrighteous? And the answer is God can't. God values righteousness even more than he hates unrighteousness. And this is the basis of Abraham's prayer. As I study this text, I find four characteristics of biblical prayer. First, modesty. Abraham didn't know what God was gonna do. 
Humility, Abraham didn't demand anything from God. Persistence, he went back again and again, talking to God six times in all, and he was persuasive. He based everything he said on the character of God himself. Now for all of that, Abraham's prayer was not answered. Sodom was destroyed. And sometimes our prayers won't be answered with a yes either. But it wasn't Abraham's fault, nor is it always our fault, but with, and with that truth in mind, we turn again to the most fundamental truth about prayer, which is that we must always pray that God's will will be done. And then finally, this story teaches us something crucial about how the righteous can save a city. You know, when Abraham and God finished their discussion, the bottom line had come to this. Ten righteous people would have saved Sodom, but God couldn't find ten righteous people in this city of a quarter of a million. As you think about that truth and think about the great cities of our world today, recall the words of Proverbs 14:34, which says, Godliness makes a nation great. Godliness is what makes a nation great, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Then there's Proverbs 28:12 that reminds us when the godly succeed, everyone is glad. When the wicked take charge, people go into hiding. And that's what was happening in Sodom. Wicked people had come to power and the righteous had simply gone into hiding. And whatever influence they once had for good, it had dissipated uh, by the overwhelming power of evil. So how does this principle work? Well, first, the righteous must be in the city. Only people in Sodom could have saved Sodom. Secondly, the righteous must truly be righteous, not pretending to be righteous. And third, the righteous must speak out. That is, they must make their presence felt in the affairs of everyday life. It's an article in Christianity Today written by a pastor of a large Midwestern church that argues that Christ followers have become too enamored with politics and political correctness at the expense of, of our calling to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And I always struggle a bit when I read an article like that. After all, he's certainly right in his basic argument that only the power of the gospel, only Jesus Christ has the power to change the human heart. It's also true that some believers have inadvertently turned the local church into a wing of the, either the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. In addition, there's always a risk that by focusing on moral issues, we may offend the very people that we're trying to reach with the good news of Jesus Christ. And we may end up with an unnecessarily negative reputation in the community. It's certainly not worth it to win whatever cause we may be trying to win at the expense of losing the hearts and souls of people. That much I'm guessing we can agree on, but to what extent should Christ followers be speaking out on moral issues? Would Sodom have been a better place if Lot had spoken out instead of apparently going along with the moral debauchery? Well, I do believe there are times when faithfulness demands that Christians, both as individuals and as churches and as institutions, speak out for good and against evil. And in these days of moral decline, are we not obligated to speak the truth? If we don't, who will? Jesus said, we're the salt of the earth and our words may sting at first, but then eventually they'll bring healing. I do think it's important that we speak to issues and not to personalities and not to politics. 
It's not our job as Christ followers to put the next president in the White House. Our God will raise up the right person at the right moment, or at least God will give us the leader we deserve, if not always the leader we want. United with others who share our concern, we can have a great impact for good in our nation. And when great moral issues are at stake, silence by the church and by Christ's followers is simply treason. By speaking out, we can show that how the, the, the gospel applies to every area of life. And when we share God's good news with a warm and humble spirit, you know what? That's an encouragement to other people. So let me share with you a few principles that I try to follow with regard to moral issues. And the first is to simply focus on the issue, not on the personality. Choose our battles carefully. Do it occasionally, but not all the time. Keep a local focus first and give others the right to disagree. You know, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, keep the main thing the main thing. And that's what we try to do here at Redeemer. Focus on connecting people with Jesus Christ and we speak out with, on moral issues when necessary. It would seem that our great need today lies in two areas, to have moral courage as the people of God and to be committed to a spirit of prayer. You know, we need the courage to speak out, to stand up for God whenever, uh, whatever the cost may be, but we also need a commitment to pray because our words and our actions will come to nothing Without the, heaven, without the help of heaven. On the basis of this passage, I have some good news and some bad news, and the good news is really good. We can make a difference. Even a few people united for a cause can change the world. And the bad news is that this passage makes it clear that it is not the presence of evil. Now hear me, it is not the presence of evil, but it is the absence of good that brings God's judgment. 10 people, 10 righteous people could have saved the city of Sodom. No matter what we may think of the sin of the city of Sodom, this much is beyond debate. God wanted to spare that wicked city. So the question I wanna leave with you today is this, what, what does God see when he looks at us? What does he see when he looks at your family? your school, your place of work, your neighborhood, your city, your village. Who are the righteous men and women who today are gonna to make an impact for all of eternity? This message today has several basic applications, but this story stands as a strong warning to those living in sin that, don't, that, that we should never mistake God's patience for his unconcern. God destroyed Sodom. He will one day bring judgment on our sin as well. And our only hope is to turn from our sin and cast ourselves on Jesus Christ for mercy and forgiveness. God can save us, but his sacrifice on the cross is of no value unless we trust him with our whole heart. And when all is said and done, our prayer matters a whole lot more than our politics. God would have spared Sodom, not because of Abraham's protest, but because of his prayer. And if we take this passage seriously, it forces us to consider one question above all else. Who are you praying for? People may not want to hear what you say, but you know what? They can't prevent you from praying. We can reach people through prayer that might not listen to our words, might not look us in the eye, 
They can stop us from speaking, but they can't stop us from praying. People have no defense against the mighty weapon of prayer. So what is the Sodom in your life? Is it in your school? Is it in your neighborhood, your office, your workplace, your family, your community? Go back and be the voice of God wherever God has placed you. And who knows, you may end up helping to save an entire city. Let's pray. Father, we have been way too uh, timid in our prayers, especially when we compare ourselves with Abraham. So help us to know you so well that we won't be afraid to ask great things of you and grow our faith in you and lead us to exercise our faith in prayers for our city, our nation, and our world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.